Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about how ghosts might haunt our games of Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what's going on? I ask myself that same question every morning and I'm yet to get a sane answer. (laughs) Well, that's because you're asking yourself, Matt. Sometimes I get a good answer. We're going to sneak in one last plug here for Concrete Cow, as this is going out shortly before the convention itself. This is the one-day convention that is held in Milton Keynes, uh, an RPG convention that is hosted at the Wolverton Old Bath House. It's £5 for the whole day, and there are three gaming slots. I think doors open at 9am. Yep. And come along, sign up for games, run games. If you want to run a game, do let the organisers know in advance, or failing that, just turn up and run it. And Scott, you were appearing on another podcast recently, I understand. Yes, I was invited on as a guest on the RPG Heroes podcast, which is a relatively new podcast. I think they're up to three episodes now, which is about, well, who people's RPG heroes are. I spoke for a while with Class, who hosts the podcast, about all sorts of things like how to build atmosphere in horror games and what my opinions of investigative games are and stuff like that, but also about who my RPG heroes were. And I'm not going to say that here. Listen to the podcast if you want to find out who that is. But it was me and Matt, right? Yeah, obviously, obviously, (laughs) yes. That goes without saying, really, yeah. I shall put a link in the show notes to that. I was also on a podcast too. Really? Oh, I God was. Uh, <laughs> which, so, uh, which one? It was uh, the Grognard Files. Ah. Uh, it was the recording made at Grogmeet back in November last year. Dirk Dice released that in February. Right, then we shall link to that from the show notes as well. And now on to our main topic, Ghosts in Call of Cthulhu. Last episode, we talked about ghosts in general, ghost stories, ghost legends, what we thought ghosts were. And this time, we're going to get a bit more gaming-related and talk specifically about how ghosts fit into Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos, whether they do, actually, and also how we might use them in our own games. So maybe we should go back to the roots of it, and how do ghosts manifest in the Cthulhu mythos, i.e. going back to Lovecraft? How much did he use ghosts? Yeah, this is a tricky question. Well, a big part of it really comes down to how much you classify what Lovecraft wrote or whether all the stories that Lovecraft wrote really belong as part of the Cthulhu mythos. Mm. Because Lovecraft, he wrote an awful lot of different types of things. And he was quite specific about which ones were parts of his mythos. For example, not that it's a ghost story, but the horror at Red Hook, which is one of his better known stories, even if it is a bit shit, is very much not part of the Cthulhu mythos. He specifically said that in his letters. Oh, right. And yet Cthulhu mythos scenario writers, Call of Cthulhu scenario writers, have adopted the stuff that he put in there and put it into Call of Cthulhu. Uh, Victor Laveau, when he wrote The Ballad of Black Tom, his novella, which followed on from the horror Red Hook, very much incorporated the Cthulhu mythos into that. But it wasn't a Cthulhu mythos story. Yeah, there's some bizarre choices. I was actually uh, mentioning to Scott on the way over to recording that in the recent week I, I tend to frequent a particular bookstore in Wolverton. In fact, just over the, uh, well, not even over the road, I kind of over the opening courtyard to the bathhouse where Concrete Cows held. There's this wonderful charity bookstore on the same road. I went in there and picked up a very imaginatively entitled collection of stories called Ghost Stories. Mm. Yeah. I bet you wonder what that's about. Um, But the first story in the collection, which I found a bizarre choice and why why I ended up picking it up, was the music of Eric Zahn. Oh. Which, between me and Scott thinking, yeah, there's potentially one scene in there that could classify it as a ghost story. That's it. (laughs) But But on the other hand, I mean, does a ghost story really need more than one scene that ties it in there for it to be a ghost story? I'd say the fact that Zahn pretty much comes back from the dead at the end of that story, or at least carries on playing the violin after his death, sort of makes it a borderline ghost story. If only they'd called the collection weird viola players that, you know, disappear (laughs) in the middle of the night. 
there'd be a load of stories to choose from. I mean, I'm guessing, like, let's stamp ghost stories on the front, because that'll sell. (laughs) Here's this old Lovecraft story. Let's stick that in. (laughs) They had a few, say, odd choices in there. Yeah. But, I mean, that's part of the thing of ghost stories, isn't it? It's a bit like any genre of music or books or whatever, that there's a lot of things on the periphery that kind of Hmm. get put in, and people will argue, should they be in there? Shouldn't they be in there? And I think with Lovecraft, like you're saying, Scott, there's a lot of his stories that fit into the Cthulhu mythos. There are some that definitely don't fit into Cthulhu mythos. He perhaps said which ones do, which ones don't, and and other people will maybe argue about that. But I think also the stories that we can sort of argue whether they include ghosts or not, because some of his stories that we're saying perhaps include a ghost, it's like, well, are they a ghost? Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, are they Cthulhu mythos? Maybe. Are they ghosts? Maybe. So there's a lot of grey areas there. I definitely agree. And as I said last time in our discussion of the Fontana ghost story books uh, that Robert Aikman edited, most of those are not what we consider the classic Victorian ghost story. They don't necessarily involve people coming back from the dead or very obvious representations of ghosts, but they have that sort of weird vibe to them that really sort of typified, I think, 20th century ghost stories. Lots of chains and clinking. Yeah, not that. (laughs) So let's dig into a few of those stories then. Which Lovecraft stories are we going to nominate as ghost stories? Well, I think the most obvious ones are probably things like, well, He, which I think is a pretty terrible story, but does involve some pretty explicit ghosts of Native Americans in it. It's one of the stories Lovecraft wrote very much tied in with his time in New York. And yeah, it's one of his more racist stories as well. There's really not a lot to recommend it, but yeah, it's sort of a ghost story. I remember reading it years and years and years ago. I couldn't remember anything about it. In fact, if anything, I'm probably more confusing it with Hypnos than I am uh, than he. But yeah, I, I honestly can't remember much, if anything, about it. Yeah, I think it's one of these pieces like The Street as well, which was another one. I think, I mean, they weren't written quite around the same time, but they were very much influenced by his time in New York that are really desperately forgettable. And we got In the Vaults. That does feature a guy trapped in the vault with the coffins and we kind of learn the dead are coming back to get revenge on him? Maybe. I mean, th- the way it's portrayed, it's quite ambiguous. But it's, at the same time, you know, very obvious what's happening. But, yeah, he clambers on top of a pile of coffins to try to get out of this vault in which he's trapped, this rather dodgy Undertaker-type character. When his foot goes through one of the coffins, it ends up, well, both of his feet, rather, end up being really scratched and mauled. And you know, it's put down initially to the the rotten wood of the coffins. But when he's examined later, it does seem to be bite marks and scratch marks. So one could argue it's not a ghost, it's a zombie, but, but then there's no evidence of zombies either. So we're not really seeing the classic kind of ghost images there, but we're seeing repercussions of something that we can say sounds like a ghost. They just really objected to a one-size-fits-all policy with coffins, that was all. Well, indeed. They did, yeah. Yeah. But I think this is something we'll come back to a number of times, you know, both in this episode and when we discuss M.R. James in our next episode, the fact that ghosts are, I think, quite often in fiction and in, in mythology, actually quite tangible things this whole idea of ghosts being ethereal presences isn't a universal assumption any more on the list i guess you could argue that even something like the evil clergyman might be a ghost story in that it does have the protagonist encountering the spirit of this evil clergyman after death there is an argument potentially i suppose even for the case of charles dexter ward in that Joseph Kerwin has been returned from the dead from his essential souls. He's not really a ghost, he's a revenant, but again, that's a fairly nice line. What I think is interesting about the case of Charles Dexter Ward in this context is that, as we'll touch upon, I think, fairly soon, Lovecraft's stories are fundamentally rooted in materialism, and this idea that the dead can come back, be restored through alchemy or through occult science, perhaps ties in better with the ideas of the mythos than traditional ghosts. Hmm. So it kind of feels like we're having to say, well, you could read this as a ghost story rather than this stands out as a typical traditional ghost story. He wasn't writing those. Yeah. Similarly, I think The Outsider 
could be viewed as a ghost story. Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. and I would say that one definitely could be. Again, it's a revenant, but yeah, you know, he's come back physically, but that is a type of ghost story. And he rides on the ghoul winds, which you would probably see more as a ghostly image rather than mm. a zombie flying through the air with the greatest of ease. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only example I can think of from Lovecraft's definite mythos fiction, or at least mythos-adjacent fiction, of someone surviving spiritually after death is King Karanis in The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Mm-hmm. This dreamer who has willed himself basically to continue living in the dreamlands after his death in the physical plane. And the dreamlands itself, you could almost read as a kind of spirit world. Mm. The Dreamlands, I mean, that's a topic for another time, but yeah, it could be a real place. It could be something that is willed into being. It could be Hmm. just something completely alien. That's one of the things I like about it. He's not dead. He's just dreaming. (laughs) (laughs) Then let me put a question to both of you. In terms of the Cthulhu mythos, if we look upon it in terms of it being a purely material thing that there isn't the traditional gothic trappings there aren't spirits there aren't ghosts there aren't people living on after death when you encounter ghost-like things in the cthulhu mythos what might they be well you're making a statement there is that true though that things i mean is the outsider in the cthulhu mythos i would kind of feel it is Really? I, I don't necessarily see any indication that it is. I mean, that was very much from Lovecraft's Poe-influenced period when he was playing around with the, the trappings of Gothic fiction. Hmm. And, yeah, I, I've never considered The Outsider to be Cthulhu Mythos. I think it's been subsumed into it because it doesn't it mention Queen Nicatrice, which has yeah. then been obviously pulled into the mythos in her own way. So no, I've always looked at it as being a mythos tale. Yeah, I don't think that was Lovecraft's intent. I mean, this is, you know, what I was saying earlier mm-hmm. about, particularly in Call of Cthulhu, our desire to try to incorporate everything that Lovecraft wrote into the mythos. But yeah, I don't think that was Lovecraft's intent. Because mm. I don't know that the dead can't return or have some sort of manifestation here in the Cthulhu mythos. But you can say death isn't the end from the case of Charles Dexter Ward by point that, yeah, he dies and then he comes back. Yes. But again, that is someone whose mortal remains have been preserved in this alchemical state and have been restored by some form of occult science. So it's very much a sort of physical reincorporation rather than the idea that the spirit lives on after death. With Lovecraft, what he really set out to do was create horror that did not rely upon any of, well, certainly the trappings of Gothic fiction, but certainly any element of belief that you didn't have to have any belief in in God or life after death or ghosts in order to buy into the ideas of the Cthulhu mythos. I don't know, for me personally, reincorporating all those elements almost feels like cheapening it somehow. It feels like diluting it. Yeah, I don't really see religion or faith coming into it, really, in terms of ghosts. It's just that, like you say, if Charles Dexter Ward can be back, brought back by science in some way, then it's almost like there's a scientific rationale for ghosts, that for bringing back the spirit of a person. That's not the spirit. That's the idea that everything that made up his his body, his mind, his brain has been reincorporated, that he's been restored from his remains. So I don't see that as having any spiritual aspect. Again, I'm with Paul, I wouldn't say include religion in here, not unless you're bowing before the king in yellow and he deserves some praise. But the one image I keep coming back to is in Dreams in the Witch House, of these figures of light, these shapes that just float throughout the void. Well, if those shapes can be reformed to look like a human being, you could argue that they are just after images, their consciousness made manifest that continues on beyond the physical body. That could be a form of ghost. I think once you start getting into the whole idea of spirits living on after death, you then open up the wider field of metaphysics, and I think religion then is an almost inevitable consequence of that. I'm not necessarily talking about Judeo-Christian religion, but I think religious interpretations in general. I don't know, that feels very much square peg round hole to me when it comes to the mythos. I mean, certainly I don't think Lovecraft believed in ghosts. He was very materialistic, I feel from having read about him 
Yeah, I mean, I just take a fairly open approach to the Cthulhu mythos, really. And if it feels good to have a ghost in there, then I have a ghost in there. Hmm. I don't really, it's not as defined as that to me, I think I'd say. I don't know. Uh, for example, I mean, there is one of the the major campaigns for Call of Cthulhu, which has a side quest in there that is very much about ghosts. Mm. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm being vague here to avoid spoilers. Yeah. But there is a side quest in one chapter of this campaign that is an absolutely archetypal ghost story. Someone has been wronged, their spirit is hanging around after death, looking for revenge for what has been done to them. When I was reading through that, I don't know, it just, I, I was quite shocked and taken aback it just felt like it had no reason to be there it didn't belong it just it felt like it was something that had been put in there from a different not just a different campaign but a different game there was nothing about this that i could look at and think yeah this is call of cthulhu i don't think i've played that one so scott what do you think ghosts are if you're going to have ghosts in the mythos what do you think they'd be or where would they come from well, I think if you were really determined to try to put some kind of ghost story element into Call of Cthulhu, there are all sorts of ways in which you might. Well, in fact, I think, you know, perhaps the most obvious one is the classic, the haunting, the, you know, the, mm. the first scenario that people play in Call of Cthulhu. You do have a haunted house in there and you do have, you know, sort of a ghost, but at the same time, it's portrayed very much in physical terms. Yeah, it's kind of an undead wizard, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I think people who have somehow transformed themselves after death or, you know, used magic to try to create some kind of ongoing existence for them, that, that sort of fits in. I think there are all sorts of mad science ways you could do so as well. So, you know, in Call of Cthulhu, well, in the mythos in general, you have this idea of multiple dimensions. You know, if you play around with some of the ideas from, from beyond, for example, mm-hmm. you know, people who have got themselves trapped between dimensions and are trying to return, I and mean, I think would potentially manifest as ghosts without having to you know, rely on that idea of life after death. Just a bit more wormy and lots of pituitary glands. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think that's an important point here, that just because you have some ghosts in a Call of Cthulhu you know, mythos universe doesn't mean everybody lives on after death. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily saying, oh, there is definitely life after death for everybody. It's that person for some reason because they were a wizard or because you know something affected them or because somebody raised them up or something somehow they've become a ghost that seems fine to me i don't see that it needs to be consistently everybody lives on after into the afterlife you're saying a wizard did it yeah and also there are creatures in the mythos that manifest in ways that we could see as being ghost like the classic obviously is the loigor so you have these entities that can be invisible, that can create psychic disturbances, that can act telekinetically, almost like poltergeist activity. So if you had you know, very much a classic haunted house scenario there, could very well just be a loigor. That reminds me of a particular scenario. Are there any other examples that either of you can think of, of ways within the mythos that you could present a classic ghost story without it actually being a classic ghost? I love mainly from one of the images that's in the in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook. I think it's around the chapter on alien tech and equipment, where there's the projection of the Yithian, that it could be something that's projected from another time, mm. that it's not so much an entity in the here and now, but it's an echo of something that has happened or will happen. Because time slips are played around with a lot in Lovecraft, so hey, why not use them here? Well, I think if you were looking for inspiration on how to do that really creepily, you could do worse than look at the old Sapphire and Steel TV series. Oh, I love Sapphire and Steel. Because they played around an awful lot with the idea that ghosts, uh, or what appeared to be the manifestation of ghosts, was just simply entities out of time. The first two stories in that series in particular, say around the house with the plague victims and then the train station with everyone Mm -hmm. that ends up there, hell yeah. Yeah, that definitely fits. And now we have a look at how we might use ghosts in Call of Cthulhu. Paul, you're probably the best qualified person to answer this here. Why are there ghosts in Call of Cthulhu? Because it's a horror role-playing game. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I think that is the answer, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so there's sections in the rule book on mythos entities. So you've got your deep ones and your shoggoths and so on. And then there's a section on mythos gods and deities. So yeah, you've got the great old ones and Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth and so on. There's a section on regular beasts so you've got dogs and i don't know sharks and real real world animals and then you've got a section on supernatural entities which are kind of presented as a separate section but there's vampires and ghosts and werewolves and you know your traditional some might say kind of gothic stereotypes i think the advice in that chapter is these perhaps don't fit into traditional call of cthulhu but you know if you want to use the game to run a uh, ghost story or a vampire story or whatever then it lends itself to that and certainly when i'm coming up with an idea for a game i just kind of get ideas for a, a scenario and i'm not thinking of a call of cthulhu scenario so much as i'm thinking of a horror scenario really and sometimes mm. i find myself perhaps putting a bit of a twist or a gloss on it at the end to make it a bit more call of cthulhu you know adding in changing the threat into something that's linked to some mythos entity or you know making it a mythos wizard rather than just a, a regular kind of uh, a regular you know wizard yeah just to kind of make it feel on brand a bit more but uh, yeah really I, I just use it as a mode for telling horror-based stories yeah i think i'm probably close to that i do find myself very influenced by the themes of the mythos and the general ideas of it rather than the specific entities. I mean, I'm generally not very interested in going off and reinventing or you know, playing with someone else's creations. I want to invent something new. But I find it much easier to sort of stay within the the themes and constraints, the non-supernatural aspect of the mythos. And I agree with you entirely that you know, the reason it's all there is almost certainly because this was the first horror RPG. And, you know, if people were buying it, it would have seemed weird if it hadn't had ghosts and vampires in it. Because at that time, most people buying it probably had no idea who Lovecraft was or what the Cthulhu mythos was. And if they bought this game this horror game and there hadn't been ghosts in it, is how can this be a horror game? There aren't any ghosts. But I didn't include them in 7th edition because they were in there before. I'd have wanted the, that in definitely anyway. Yeah, I think Mike and I were on the same page with that. Along with mummies, zombies and other, yeah, other all traditional that. horrors. All those, yeah. I mean, what about you, Matt? When you come to writing Call of Cthulhu Adventures, do you steer away from those traditional horrors and cleave much more to canon Call of Cthulhu mythos? I try generally to stick within the the kind of the canvas of the mythos, but put elements of that it could be X, Y, or Z on top of that, almost as like forms of misdirection, like ghosts, for example, making it appear that it's a ghost when it is actually something else entirely, or making it appear that it's a zombie and making it appear that it's something else entirely. Think Things like that. Because it seems to me like the players are interacting with, you know, the knowledge that man should not know and all that, and they're experiencing the... The manifestations of these entities or monsters or whatever they are well if they manifest as traditional ghosts they don't know what's behind that they don't know what's making them but they might be perceiving that yeah and i think the the archetypal story for that kind of representation is probably the stone tape mm. Mm. because that is both a ghost story and a science fiction story there is no supernatural element to that story there's a reason why it's a favourite of mine. And I refer the listeners to an earlier episode <laughs> about entitled The Stone Tape, based on the TV show by Nigel Neal. And one of the other reasons, I suppose, why it seems strange to me that ghosts are in Call of Cthulhu, or at least that they found their way in there in the first place, was when we had that interview a while back with Sandy Peterson, he talked about what drew him to the Cthulhu mythos and the fact that part of the appeal for him was the fact that it was science fiction, it wasn't supernatural, because it then didn't conflict with his religious faith, that he didn't like traditional kind of gothic ghost stories because those were against his religious beliefs. Yeah, because they kind of featured people fighting off the undead with crucifixes and holy water and so on. Well, and I think just the idea of ghosts and and evil revenants and so on very much played against the the kinds of things that he was raised to believe. But I mean, having played with Sandy, I mean, he loves all those horror tropes, mm. doesn't he? I mean, he's got 
literally thousands of horror DVDs and he loves everything horror. And I think he takes a pretty broad approach to all of that in his scenario designs, in my experience. Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right there. Remember the anecdote that he has a section of his DVD collection that's not horror? Yes, a small <laughs> section. Yeah, I mean, in a scenario, do we use ghosts as the kind of active threat or a kind of plot device? Because that's what I often see them as in written scenarios. They're, mm. they're there and the players can come into trouble with them, perhaps if they anger them or something like that, and there can be a conflict. But perhaps if the players work in the right way, they can learn stuff from the ghost and interact with it positively. I've, I've used one... Well, I've actually twice I think I've used ghosts in the scenario where it's been an actual ghost rather than something pretending to be uh, or mistaken for a ghost. And in both times, one one to a greater degree, one to a lesser extent, the ghost in there fulfills a purpose that it's there for a particular reason. And by getting round it or trying to solve the issue of getting past it as an obstacle in the sense of being able to achieve the players achieving their goal, they understand a bit more about the situation they're in. So it's a combination of, yes, it's a threat because it's something they're up against and if they want to complete the scenario, they have to get past it. But it's also a plot device in the sense that it, it reveals more about what's happening in the situation without being an explicit info dump. I think that's part of the charm of ghosts is that they're often presented as a almost like a riddle to be solved. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to, you know, that stereotypical thing of they left something undone in de in life and they want to make it right or have something settled until they can be laid to rest. So there's something that they want you to do or there's something you need to do to get rid of that ghost. So it's a good kind of driver for a, a story. I always worry a little bit about plot devices like that. I mean, ghosts are a classic example, but there are plenty of others where there is a solution. Let's say that you do have the ghost of someone who's left some unfinished business behind and needs to have it resolved before they can pass on. And while they're around is this ghostly presence, they are causing chaos, people are dying, whatever it is. Uh, so you have a group of investigators who have to solve this. And, okay, there may be some fun stuff with trying to get to the bottom of it, you know, dodging the ghost's revenge and... And digging around and, you know, perhaps going through their papers or their personal possessions, interviewing other people, learning what it is that this person might have wanted. But in the end, you know, perhaps they had, you know, some hidden item that they, you know, had concealed in the walls of, of their house that is, you know, they're bound to or, or that needs to be given to someone else before they can rest or something like that. And, yeah, you have to then go and find this item and then do whatever it is with it. Or worse than that, you know, there, there's, you know, some, some kind of ritual perhaps you've got to do in order to lay them down. And this is something that's prescribed to you. And it feels like the worst kind of just sort of participation. It feels like you've got to keep playing until you figure out what the GM wants you to do, that one thing yeah. they've got in their head that sometimes... Like, what is it? I don't know. Let's just keep trying things. It's easy. You just watch Supernatural. You find the body, you salt the bones, and you burn them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, done. that is pretty much half of their episodes, it seems. <laughs> it is. But the other thing that's remarkable about that is two guys turn up in the middle of the night in a graveyard with a couple of spades, and they dig like a perfectly sized, <laughs> yes. like six foot deep, about five foot wide hole. They've had practice. How good are they at digging? Well, they've, been, they've had, what, 15 years of practice to do it? I think Have they you can been do it outside and tried to dig a hole in your garden? It's really hard work. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why grave diggers don't dig stuff by hand anymore. They just use excavating machines. Yeah, they're not grave <laughs> diggers. That's but, yeah, it's just this idea that, I mean, not only but, you know, are you having to do just what it is that the GM specified, but also that doing it is just basically following a recipe. There's no creativity involved there. You're not having to come up with a solution. You're being told what it mm. is and then just rolling some dice to see whether you do it. But, I mean, that sounds like you know, a number of scenarios that we've experienced, oh, yeah. whether they're ghost ones or other ones. So I think... Yeah, I think the ghost can have something that it wants done, but that shouldn't be the only way to to mm. come to a resolution in that story. So, you know, that's one path. If that's the only path, then I don't think that's good. But yeah. if there are a multitude of paths and what that's one of them, then I think that's fine in that way. Yeah, thinking of how I've used them in, one, in say, in one particular scenario, it's actually 
in a way, more advantageous if you don't get rid of the ghost and mm. you leave it doing what it's doing. And if anything, you help it to do what it's doing, that that in itself is a win condition rather than having to get rid of it. But it is great as an NPC because Matt can't just shoot it in the face and make it disappear <laughs> when it starts speaking. I'll, I'll throw anything at the bloody thing. I'll throw a cross. I'll throw holy water. I'll yeah, run through it. it just I'll blow the building there, up. It just stands there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is a good point, though. In a scenario like that, how do you fight a ghost? So in the mechanics, there are suggestions for this, and it also suggests that you make each ghost a unique entity. So they only have intelligence and power stats in the Call of Cthulhu rules because it's taken that when we're talking about a ghost we're talking about that traditional non-corporeal form and if it's got a body then you know it'd fall into the zombie category and so on they have up to 1d8 sand loss which you know seems appropriate particularly if they're particularly horrific looking and they're clearly not a living being and they can combat you with opposed power roles so Typically, they've got a reasonably high power, I guess, if they've been around for a while. And we both make an opposed power roll, and whoever wins, the loser takes 2d10 power loss. So it's kind of sucking power from you, but you can end up beating the ghost. If you're very powerful, you can perhaps cow it and you know it loses face and disappears for a while i cannot think of an example from fiction of that happening I and mean, this seems to be a very game-like approach mm. that you you engage in the psychic battle but if i think about the various ghost stories i've read over the years i literally cannot off the top of my head think of one example in fiction of that happening. the closest i can think of ghostbusters wrestling to get it in the trap that's the closest analogy I can find. And even then, close is a very loose word yeah. to use. And I think if you dressed up your power battle with I open up, let's say you are taking on the kind of classic thing of reading from the Bible or, you know, using holy water or something. And if you're using that as part of your opposed power role, then that would kind of fit because, you know, you're driving it out in some way. Yeah. And that was very much sort of the traditional way. I, I was reading a little while back Peter Ackroyd's book, The English Ghost, which mm. is a collection of ghost legends and stories that oh. he's compiled. It's mm. a really good book. It's really small as well. Yeah. Um, well, it's a Com compared, to, compared to some other bricks of his, it's really small. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got a fantastic introduction where he talks about the English ghost tradition and the history of ghosts. And he does talk very much about, you know, these ideas of exorcisms or ways of battling ghosts, which, yeah, a lot of them do boil down to what you just said there of getting a minister and reading the Bible and sprinkling holy water or, or just praying for days to try to convince the spirit to move on and leave you alone. And I've certainly known people in real life have a minister come round and do just that. What was interesting, I think, about this was the fact that in a lot of these cases – it wasn't a question of just convincing it to go away. It was a question of trapping the spirit, oh. uh, that this involved, like I say, prayer or reading from the Bible. But at the end of it, the goal wasn't to dismiss it or exercise it. It was to contain it. In a bottle. In a bottle. That was the classic one, yeah. But not just a bottle. Other things included things like chimneys. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah. You're saying Father Christmas is a ghost? Yeah, absolutely. And he's stuck in my <laughs> chimney right now. Or trees, mm. which plays in nicely with M.R. James's The Ash the Tree. tree. Yeah. Oh. Demon trap! <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. They just carved it on the inside of the chimney and it's stuck there. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know about you. I mean, that sounds absolutely horrific to me. I mean, let's say that you accept the idea of a ghost, this spirit that's lived on after death. This was a person. And they've become trapped in some cycle of destructive behaviour, either through malevolence or just because they've been corrupted by the process of becoming a ghost. And you are now dooming them to eternity of being stuck in a bottle or a, a tree or a mm. fireplace. Mm. Well, that's pretty fucking grim, isn't it? Well, it depends what else is in there with you. I've uh, I've worked in smaller workplaces than bottles. <laughs> <laughs> Matt is like a ghost entombed in his workplace. Five I've, days a week. I feel like The Walking Dead. Yeah. <laughs> Normally between 8.30 and 5. Have either of you read Mike Carey's Felix Castor books? No. Never heard of him. Oh, right. Oh, they're a fantastic urban fantasy series. Uh, very British, very dark, uh, nice sardonic sense of humour. You lost me at urban fantasy. 
Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, they're set in a, an alternate London where, for reasons unknown, the dead have started coming back in various forms. And it's, it's really quite imaginative, sometimes physically, and sometimes as manifestations of ghosts. There are people who have got the natural talents of exorcism, and the protagonist, Felix Castor, is one of these people who has got the gift of, of being able to basically drive ghosts out of existence through exorcism, and pretty much refuses to do it because he does not believe that there is a life beyond the physical world, and that by exercising a spirit, by driving them out of existence, that he's destroying them. And for him, that's an ethical conundrum, that basically exorcism is murder, or the worst kind of murder. And you put me in mind the Rivers of London, of course, because mm. one of the, well, I think the first supernatural entity that Peter Grant meets is a ghost. Yes. A few pages in, as a witness to a crime. <laughs> and also i guess we're tying this background to lovecraft and people being trapped in bottles or spirits being trapped mm. in bottles there's the terrible old man yeah where he does precisely that mm. makes me think of the amigo brain case in a different light now yeah mm. somewhat it's not the same but it's mm -hmm. a little yeah. yeah it's just a little bit bigger than a jar yeah similar experience for the uh, end user yeah. mm -hmm. or the uh, contained yeah <laughs> There are a couple of other forms of exorcism that Peter Ackroyd mentioned, which, you know, again, I thought might be quite cool to use in games. One is very similar to what you were talking about last time, uh, Matt, with the ghost of the boy on the bridge. Oh, the candles have got thrown over into the river. Yeah, yeah which is basically giving them some impossible task to do mm. that will keep them busy. So the examples that he found from old stories were things like weaving a rope out of sand or emptying a pond with a sieve. <laughs> that you, you command the ghost to do that, and because it can never actually finish doing it, mm. then it's stuck forever doing that and not bothering people. I can think of a few people that should be given that kind of task. <laughs> <laughs> They're not dead yet, but, you know, yeah, still. Give them time. Yeah. yeah. And the other one, which I hadn't encountered before, which is just kind of weird to me, is getting rid of spirits by throwing handfuls of graveyard dirt at them. The logic behind it or the theory behind it is that because graveyard dirt rots away bodies that it also rots away ghosts and by throwing handfuls of, of dirt at them you're basically reproducing that process that caused them to rot away um mm. yeah it's, <laughs> i'm not sold on it but yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it's more just uh cleanliness takes over it is no run away from the dirt but as i've mentioned before there is an idea in a lot of ghost stories and in ghost legends that ghosts are physical things. I mean, if that were the case, if you had a physical manifestation of a ghost, M.R. James's ghosts, most of them are physical. Mm -hmm. I, how would you actually deal with that in the game? And would someone actually be able to fight it just because it was physically there? I'd put it down to energy into mass and vice versa, that it's something they could become corporeal for a time. But only on a limited basis. Because otherwise, in the stories, why wouldn't they be there all the time? They only appear in physical form at particular moments to perform particular tasks. Yeah, and if we think about like poltergeists, then they can move things around. They're not necessarily manifesting as a physical form, but they can affect the physical world. So you know, like Matt says, are they physical all the time? You know, I go to uh, shoot it and maybe my bullet passes through it, even though it seems to be corporeal. Or alternatively, the fact that it is just dead already. You have a ghost that has perhaps risen up from the grave like a zombie or has manifested some memory of its body. You pump six bullets into it. Why is it going to care? Yeah. It's dead. Yeah. Although I have thought now with that analogy going around around in my head, if I play in a story where a ghost features in one of your scenarios, Paul, I'm bringing a loud siren just to drown the sound of their monologue out. Ah, Cause that okay. is the only way I can combat the <laughs> white noise. Uh -huh. yeah. Just as an aside, do you know where this whole idea of ghosts being insubstantial largely came from? No, go on. There were elements of this in various ghost traditions, but our modern idea of what a ghost is comes from Victorian theatre. So have, have you encountered Pepper's Ghost? No. Not personally. Pepper's Ghost was a technique that was created for the theatre so they could present ghosts on stage. And it's still used to this day in things like the Haunted Mansion ride at Disneyland World. Mm. 
uh, which is you basically project an image on a pane of glass at a 45-degree angle. So what they do in the theatre is they'd have a pit under the stage or in front of the stage, like the orchestra pit, and they put this sheet of glass at 45 degrees over it. And at various points, they'd have someone dressed as a ghost come out and and light that up. And for the audience, it would look like there was suddenly this insubstantial form hmm. drifting around on the stage that was translucent or transparent. Early hologram. Yeah, mm. well, in fact, Kinda. you know, the, the, the holograms that people talk about for things like the Tupac tour that came around, you know, recently, where they basically got this dead rapper up on stage to perform for an audience, that was Pepper's Ghost. That was exactly the same thing. Oh. I vaguely heard of Tupac, but I have no context for what the <laughs> hell that is. <laughs> the modern world, Matt, you know, what do you do? <laughs> modern oh. world, he died, what, 20 years ago? <laughs> modern to Matt. That is pretty modern. I mean, one thing that occurs to me when you're using ghosts in games is, are they real? Because mm. a great suggestion for ghosts would be to have them, some characters see them after substantial sanity loss as delusions. Particularly if that character's on their own, you know, and they start talking to somebody and then they, you know, they do that thing of leaving the room and they tell people they've just met this other person and they go in and they, they've disappeared, <laughs> you know, and... You know, it's that whole thing of, I see dead people. Or even that they go off, talk to someone, come back, tell the others about it, and the others, unlike them, know that that person's dead. Mm. Or have had um, a character, you know, talk to his deceased wife on the on the radio from, uh, I think, in Walker in the Wastes, actually. They use that as a plot device in The Walking Dead as well. Yeah, the telephone, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I kind of shy away from that. If there is a ghost in inverted commas that isn't really there or isn't something, it, there's a reason why it's not there. It's not that it's just a delusion. It's maybe either someone playing with perception or it's a trick that the investigator's been you know, fallen into. But just to have it as, oh, yeah, it's just in your own head. There's nothing really there. It's the same reason why I really don't like Turn of the Screw. Uh, I remember seeing one of the adaptations of that because it's the whole, oh, is there really a ghost? Isn't there really a ghost? No, fuck that shit. There either is or isn't. And I, I'd, I'd rather I'd love, go. I love the story for that reason. No, that's the that's the absolute uh, real deep end hatred of mine. It's no, give me a straight fucking answer. If it's a ghost story, there's a ghost in it. Well, I think it wouldn't be a ghost story in the game. It'd be just a manifestation of that character's insanity. Yeah, which um, I yeah, so it's, it's kind of cheapens a ghost story for me. Well, an alternative way of looking at it would be that by becoming slightly unhinged that they're able to perceive things that other people aren't. So perhaps they go off and they have that encounter with the ghost and come back. Perhaps even that they're standing in the midst of the other group of investigators and talking to someone who none of the others can see. And everyone assumes that it's a delusion, but because of their current mental condition they're the only ones who can actually perceive that ghost. Mm -hmm. You're getting into realms that don't rest your head there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've somehow sort of latched into it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've used them this way, but certainly, you know, in my own scenarios that I've worked on, but certainly in ones that I've run, I've encountered ghosts as, you know, entities that are a good way of kind of linking to events in the past, and they're not necessarily friendly or antagonistic, kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, ghosts don't always have to be antagonistic. I think having a ghost pop up and just sort of act as an info dump or help the investigators is a bit shit, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you couldn't find some creative way of doing it. Yeah, I think there's generally going to be some kind of cost or repercussion involved because you don't really want the friendly ghost. Ah, oh, Casper's an okay friend. I knew you'd say it, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> He managed to get a Ghostbuster cameo in there. It can't be all bad. And have you ever used haunted objects in your games? I mean, these are perhaps you know things that appeal to me even more. Just these these items that have got ghosts associated with them or bound into them that perhaps enter the investigators' lives or they you know have to find them and sort of bring this horrible curse with them. I mean, we see a lot of this in M.R. James. We see a lot of it in J-horror. Well, I have in uh, a scenario you've played in Bottles. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. In the Wild West. Never mind. Oh. Anyway. No, no, no. I, I, I twigged now. No, I was thinking that I've used it, but not in Call of Cthulhu. I've actually done it recently, um, at, funnily enough, at Contingency just a few weeks ago in a cult game. The PCs were actually dead to start with, but they have the disadvantage symbol bondage, where effectively it is an item that they're connected to that they haunt. 
there was more of a case at the end of the scenario they had to go and find said objects to uh, to claim their freedom. Mm. Mm. There is an Unknown Armies one-shot that I've run a number of times where, unbeknownst to them at the start, the player characters are actually ghosts bound into objects. I remember that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think I'm thinking <laughs> of the right one. And another way I've used sort of ghost-like entities in well, certainly convention one-shots or one convention one-shot was as almost like lures, these manifestations of people who died that this large entity, this almost mythos-like entity was using as a way of interacting with human beings and as a way of pulling them into its clutches and almost the way that an anglerfish sort of dangles you know, something in front of its prey. Here, paranormal investigator, come here. Woo-hoo-hoo. It kind of makes me think in Dockside Dogs, I used, I don't, I don't think I really used ghosts, but I used reflections of the future and past of mm. a person, which is kind of a bit like a ghost, which oh, we didn't yeah. really talk about. You know, actual manifestations of somebody appearing, you know, from the past or from the future, but somehow like a ghost, they appear in the present before you. Not really the traditional concept of a ghost, because perhaps the person isn't dead while they're projecting, but it still fulfills a lot of the same criteria, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And so I said, time playing around with time definitely happens enough in Lovecraft that you can't can't not use it at times. Mm. Well, I think if you were going for something nihilistic as well, I mean, really dark, it would not necessarily fit with the mythos. But I think if you wanted to push this to the limit. The film that you should watch for inspiration is Pulse, a Japanese horror film from 2001 made by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who is, I think, one of the best horror directors around. I mean, not all of his work is horror, but he has done some really creepy, strange films. But Pulse is this sort of apocalyptic film with the the dead returning in horrific ways, basically bringing destruction with them. And this apocalypse that results with, you know, humanity just getting destroyed by the constant appearance of the dead. And, oh God, there is an American remake, which I wholeheartedly recommend avoiding. I know this was uh, something that made you uh, have a very visceral reaction against it i have this image of you screaming at your uh screen when uh when the last episode came around but one of the tricks they pulled off in the recent adaptation of haunting of hill house i thought worked quite well with bent neck lady oh yes and there's a particular character who has a recurring experience where they keep seeing the same thing over and over again at particularly bad moments in their life but when you, they then get to the end of their story, you then realise what exactly that is, that it's not necessarily that it's that thing appearing at that particular moment to make that event happen, but very much the reverse. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, again, all about perception. It's turning things on their head. I, just, I really like that trick. Yeah, I mean, the other thing they did in that TV programme, which I thought was interesting, and it took me a long time to catch on, was the fact that when you're in Hill House itself, you... Almost never, I think, I think possibly never see a scene in it where there is not at least one ghost in the background somewhere. <laughs> and it's done really subtly. I don't know how you pull that off in the game. Just, you know, little hints, I guess, of, of things being wrong, descriptions of people who shouldn't be there, paintings or statues in that case changing every now and then. <laughs> There's always that person repairing the clock. Mm. <laughs> Shall we wrap up with our best ghost story ever? That's easy for me. James Herbert's Haunted. Okay. I, I absolutely adore the ghost at the heart. Well, one of the ghosts at the heart of that story. There's, there's multiple. It's the ghost of the main character's sister and the motivation she has to do what she does in the course of that story is so vindictive, so twisting the knife and so vicious. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Scott? Oh, my favourite by a long chalk is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. The TV series, as we've mentioned before, is a completely different thing. It's got you know, almost nothing to do with the book. I mean, it's good in its own rights, but it's it's not the book. Kind of like the film adaptation of Haunted as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, this very much so. I mean, they set out basically to do a completely different story. Yeah, again, with, with Haunted, they completely butchered the original story. No, no, it's not that they butchered it. They <laughs> deliberately set out to do a different story, <laughs> which is an artistic choice, which I actually respect, <laughs> because they basically reworked it into a new narrative and created something interesting out of it. I'd argue very strongly that that's a different thing. Mm. 
But what, for me, makes The Haunting of Hill House so powerful is the fact that it is a psychological study. It's an exercise in ambiguity. It's creepy as hell. And it really sort of, I don't know, gets into... I, I think something that you probably could use in Call of Cthulhu, this grey area of how much is someone going insane and how much is the influence of, of ghosts around them. And it also you know, has this house, Hill House in it, which is almost like this malevolent entity. It's been built so everything about it is slightly wrong. Everything's just at a slightly wrong angle. There, there isn't a right angle in the place. And it just has this corrosive effect on the sanity of the people around it. Just spending time there is inviting a form of psychic destruction. So you're saying the one place on earth that people can go to escape the hounds of Tindalos <laughs> will still manage to get you in the end? Yes. Mm. Well, it's got corners, but not perfect corners. <laughs> well, you said no right angles. Yeah. How about you then, Paul? Well, I think I'll just pick uh, A Christmas Carol. I love Ebenezer Scrooge being haunted by Jacob Marley or Marley and Marley in uh, The Muppet's Christmas Carol. The best version. The best version by a long shot. And right. just that that concept of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. Mm. It's kind of a ghost of a, an event. A zeitgeist, one might say. But yeah, that's that would have to be my favourite. But as you say, Matt, the true version, as Dickens, Gonzo, yeah. wished. Damn right. Yeah. Anyway, you can get uh, Statler Ward off into a film with a starring role like that. Yeah, gets my vote. Oh, for fuck's sake. Thank you. Thank you. We have come once again to that time in the podcast when we say thank you to people. We would like to start by saying thank you to everyone who's listening, thank you to everyone who has backed us on Patreon, and we have a few new people to thank by name. So we've got a big thanks going out to Rachel Goldman. And thanks also to Madeline Turley. Thank you very much, Brian Contino. Just a single name here. Thank you very much to Clams. Mm, I'm hungry now. Not just general clams, a specific person. And also thanks to a good friend of ours, William Adcock. And thank you very much, David Zahavi. And thank you to Henri Lervenbrook. Henri follows us on Twitter and he is an author, quite a well-established one. And he is also a part of a French Call of Cthulhu writers group. His books are translated into about 13 languages, including Chinese, Italian, German... But sadly, for us at least, not English. And I asked him about this and he said it's pretty hard to convince English and American publishers to do that translation and, you know, publish <laughs> his books, which is kind of sad because I'm very intrigued to read some of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having flicked through his, his Goodreads page and the list of books available on Amazon in French, mm. yeah, it looks like he's written some very cool stuff. And I'm wondering whether my really badly atrophied French is going to be up to actually tackling one. I, I may give it a try, but it's got to be hard work. Surprising that they haven't done that if he's been in so many other languages. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. Publishing I, is a weird world. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I wonder whether it's just because so much stuff is published in English that it becomes harder for foreign language authors to get a foot in the door. Mm. Okay, well, that's it for tonight. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm.